Scripture says that only God is good in Romans 3. There's none good uh, except Him. Uh, so anything good that ever happens out of us uh, is the goodness of God uh, that flows through. So what a, what a privilege it is. Uh, I hope we don't ever uh, grow... Um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but it, it is a privilege to gather up uh, and to be able to worship God. Uh, in Psalm 150, it says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Uh, and as long as we breathe, uh, it is a gift whenever we have the opportunity to gather uh, to praise Him and to exalt Him. Uh, a few of us uh, returned this past week uh, from uh, Ireland uh, where we gathered with our global workers uh, that we partner with at 121. Several months ago, uh, Elvis Gallegos, our mission pastor, uh, said, hey, what would you think if we found a way to gather up our global workers for a, a retreat, uh, where we could just be a refreshment to them, have them all together in one place, uh, be in the Word together, pray together, encourage each other. Uh, and they began working on it. Uh, and I just have to say, uh, by the time we were done last weekend, uh, I just looked at it and thought, okay, this was what we hoped for, and it was way more than we hoped for. Uh, and I, I wish I could just bring all those global workers in front of you for you to see them uh, and just the, the life uh, that was breathed into them. Uh, many of them had not met each other before, so just to see that kind of interaction uh, we were with people who were from all over the world, from Indonesia, Thailand, Qatar, Turkey, Jordan, Germany, Canada. We have several that are U.S.-based, working internationally, and I believe I left one country out, but I won't try to rework it in my head at the moment. But all over the world, God has given us the privilege to be a part of what He's doing, uh, and I can't tell you how many times the global workers, most of whom you probably don't know, just express their gratitude to 121 uh, for the resources to be able to do what we did, uh, for the prayers over them, uh, for the global heartbeat to advance Jesus' name uh, all over the globe. Uh, and I just want to say on their behalf how grateful they are uh, and how grateful I am to be a part of a church uh, that recognizes God's desire for every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, to know Him. The end game for all those global workers, we have ones that are single, ones that are married with kids, uh, one couple that are empty nesters, um, variety of giftings, backgrounds, personalities that God uses. But at the end of the day, the, the one ultimate desire for all of them is that the people group that God has placed them in is that they would know Jesus Christ in a real and genuine way. And so we have the global work happening. And at the same time, as you heard Pete and Barb when they were reading the scripture and praying, we have local work that we're involved with. And Lionheart's Children's Academy that we host here and partner with uh, is a fantastic way to reach uh, families in the same way that our global workers are reaching people. And this is the five-year anniversary of Lionheart. I love the descriptor. It really just captured me a few months ago when I was on a retreat uh, with the pastors of churches that, are, that have Lionheart on their campuses. To, to think about it as the front porch. I love when Pete said that. That it, it is a way in for the millennials uh, to be in the church. Uh, and then the hope is that they would know they're welcomed uh, and we come into the living room, which would be this, and ultimately into the kitchen to serve. I just, I love that picture Pete shared. Uh, and that's a way for us to think about the peoples in all of our lives candidly. And at the end of the day for Lionheart, the end game is not education, although that's vital. The end game is not just providing a place for someone's children so that they can go to work although that's important, the end game is that these children's minds are shaped so that they one day might respond and follow Jesus and that the moms and dads and older brothers and sisters, that the families would be transformed by Jesus 
that that's the end game. At the end of our service, we're going to invite the Lionheart workers that are here to come, and we're going to have a time to pray over them, uh, to lay hands on them, to set them apart. Their mission is right across the hallway with the families in our community. In the scriptures, we see again and again people being set apart to do particular missions that God has for them. And we just want them to know we're for them, we're with them, and we're excited about the years ahead uh, that God has in store. When I think about our global workers, and I think about Lionheart locally, and I think about each of us and the spheres of influence that God has given us, whether it be where we live, we all have a sphere of influence of people around us, where we play, where we work. That the end game is that people would know Jesus. But we live in a culture that has emphasized over time a Christian subculture that emphasizes someone deciding for Jesus, which is an interesting thought in and of itself. And yet there being really no change after that. But we get excited about a decision. And I want to ask the question this morning, because this is what our global workers are doing. It's what Lionheart is doing. It's what we're doing as a church at 121. Once there's genuine and real conversion to Christ, now what? What does it look like after that? It's not just about receiving Jesus. It's now what? If you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, we'll be in verses 19 through 31. And I want us to ponder that as we tie into the scripture of what happens after we've been intercepted by Jesus in a really genuine way. Last week, Eric Estes taught in the first 18 verses of Acts 9. Eric is one of my favorite teachers. I just believe his gift is teaching. When he unpacks it, it's just clear. He was my life group leader for two years before he came on staff at our church. But last week, he spoke on these 18 verses about the radical conversion of Saul. Now, we refer to him today as Paul, which later his name will change. The word Paul means small. And I love that that was the shift in his name because he wasn't interested in his own name. He was interested in God's name, being the biggest name. He spoke of his conversion. It was a radical conversion. Saul is ravaging the church. He hates the church. He's going after the people who are following Jesus with threats and murder. And Jesus intercepts him and everything changes. He is radically changed, which I would say today that as long as someone has breath to breathe, we never give up on them being intercepted by Jesus. If that part of the scripture doesn't encourage us on anything other than knowing that there is hope for any person today. As long as they have breath to breathe, to be intercepted by Jesus, Saul was, and so many of us were as well. So now we start to see an unfolding. This is our last week in this section of Acts. We're going to take a four-week pause in August, and then we'll come back and start at the end of chapter 9 in another section of Acts. But what happens immediately with Saul gives us a great picture of now what once we know Jesus. This should be a real encouragement to so many today. And I hope you just walk out of here encouraged. Okay, yes, this has been happening for years or for months. For others, I hope it's a challenge to say, oh, that's what this looks like. If you don't even know what it is to know Jesus, that your heart might be stirred in such a way to say, oh, I want in on that. That would be my prayer today as we unpack God's word. I want to do it slightly different if I could. Normally, I'll just walk through a verse at a time, put it in sections, try to hang it so we can have clarity on it. Today, I want to talk about four ideas from it, from the way it just kind of flows back and forth. 
So I just want to tell you the overall picture. We'll work through the verses, just not in order, but more around ideas. I'm going to focus on two ideas heavily and then come back on two, and I'll spend a very small amount of time on those, partly because I'm going to talk about them in the coming weeks. Saul's converted. He's following Jesus now. He starts hanging out with some disciples, followers of Jesus. He starts preaching Jesus in the synagogues. The people can't believe it, and they start threatening him. He goes off for a period of time, a three-year period of time that we learn in Galatians, and then he comes back to Damascus where he is currently in Acts 9. From there, he heads off to Jerusalem. The other disciples, followers of Jesus, are skeptical. It's kind of like, this guy wasn't for us. He was against us. Now we're supposed to take him into our circle. And then he starts boldly preaching Jesus in Jerusalem, only to be threatened again. And then we read, as we've read often in Acts, the church continues to increase and grow in strength and stability. That's the big picture. So when we are intercepted by Jesus and now we're in relationship with him, what does it look like? Well, the first thing I want to highlight is that our friends change. Once we're intercepted by Jesus, our friends change. Let's read verse 19, the second part. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. He's radically converted. Now, several days, he's with the disciples. These weren't who he was running with just hours, days before. There's a switch here. He was running with people who were against Christians. That was his running mates. That's not who he's running with anymore. There's a friend switch. And now he's running with different people. He's running with the disciples. I have no idea what those conversations were like. I suspect they were talking about how God intercepted their lives. That Saul was saying, man, I'm walking around figuring out who I'm going to get next. It's following Jesus. And then all of a sudden I'm blinded and laid out on a road somewhere. And some guy I don't even know that says God told him to come to me uh, shows up and starts explaining what happened, baptizes me. Here I am. Now, Saul was a person who understood the Scriptures. Do you know people like that? They, they really know the Scriptures better than we do. But they're not followers of Jesus. They just have the knowledge of the Scriptures. That's how Saul was. So I wonder if the other disciples in were with him saying, yeah, this is how God intercepted my life. I was actually in that group of 3,000 uh, when Peter was preaching that first sermon in Jerusalem, and God got hold of me in the midst of that crowd. It could be disciples that were following that they looked back and said, you know what, I actually walked with Jesus. And I was in the crowds, and I was one of them in the crowds that didn't leave when he started doing the crazy things he was doing. I actually couldn't help but following. I don't know who these guys are, but somehow they've got to be sharing what it is that Jesus has done and I would believe in there that they're actually discipling Saul, the new person that's a follower of Jesus. So our friends change. There's a desire to be with other people who have the same center that we do. Jesus modeled this for us with his 12. He had 12 that were close into him, following after him. Three that he was closer to. And yet he was also among the crowds and reaching those who are far from him. The danger in what I'm saying right here is what we can, we can tend towards as Christians is once we find a few like-minded people with the same center as we have of Jesus, that then we don't do anything with anybody else out here. So there's a fine line in here. It's a friend switch. Our friends change because we're with people that are like-minded, like-hearted, we're also reaching out beyond ourselves. This is why we have such an emphasis on our life groups, so that we can have those small group communities 
like Saul was initially walking with. Centered on God's word. Praying together. Whatever life together looks like for any particular group. Doing life. Encouraging each other. Cheering each other on. Our friends change. In verse 25, his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So they were after him now in the city. And his friends now help him escape the city in the night. And that's what happens when we have a change of friends. They help us when we're in trouble. So we might find ourselves in the same kind of trouble that Saul is in. But when we have the kind of friends that are centered on Jesus and someone's in danger, then we rally around and help them in that danger. Now, just a side note in here of what we'll find in Acts. It's baffling to me as it continues to unfold. There are times when Saul, who will be Paul, stays in a city and takes the beating, gets imprisoned, comes near death. There are other times he escapes the city. I don't know why that happens each time. But I think it's a good word for us, for those of you who are in environments of work that are not Christ-centered or have some kind of favorability towards Christians. Some of you are going to be asked by God to stand your ground and speak up against things that are against him. And it's going to cost you your job. And I would like to believe that Christians will rally around and be your help in that time when you stand firm. That to me is the equivalent of Paul staying in a city and he just takes the beating and just takes what's coming to him. For whatever reason, that's what God wants to use then. God wants to use that. He's using it all over our country today. There will be other times where God will give you ways to maneuver through what's going on, where you're praying for, or other ways he's helping you navigate a really hard spot in your work where you don't have to compromise or lose your integrity, but he'll preserve you there. I don't know when it's going to be what. I just know we see that pattern unfold for Paul and Acts. And that his friends are a help to him, whatever it is. In verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, in verse 27, took hold of him and brought him to the apostles, and he spoke well uh, of him. Sometimes we're skeptical of people to come into our circle. We don't really believe it. You know, we hear about them in the community, and I don't know if I want them in my community because of the reputation they bring with it. They look different all the time, but principally, sometimes we're skeptical of people that are interested in being a part of what's going on. But isn't it good that there are Barnabases in the world? Barnabas means sons of encouragement, son of encouragement. Somebody they'll advocate for us. Say, you know what? This is what I've seen. I think it's a real deal. But you know what? Jesus had Judas. Even if we miss here, God's got something for it. He's doing something here. We see that pattern unfold in Acts as well. That's one of the beauties of walking through a book of the Bible. You watch patterns unfold. And one pattern that we see in Acts is people coming alongside to help other people. Peter and John, they were working together. When the ones leading were overwhelmed, there were seven more that were raised up to be a help. When the Ethiopian eunuch needed help understanding the scripture, here comes Philip. When Saul needs help understanding what just happened to him, 
here comes Ananias. And Eric talked about the risk and reward of an Ananias. We'd be the kind of people that are willing to risk for someone to be a part when we don't know where it's going to go. There's a friend switch. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says about this, by the way, that it's not true community until there's a difficult person in the community. Usually, when we talk about that, we think of someone. But I know that I'm somebody's difficult person. And I'm glad I can help people grow by cheering them on (laughs) or being difficult. Because when we're difficult people, it forces us even more so to lean into Christ and know how in the world do I walk with this person? How do I do one more group with this person? I read something years ago that said, you know what? God will leave that person there until he's done doing the work he needs to do in you. I'm sad about all the work God's doing in me so often. And I'm sad that I'm the person that gets to help be that work in you. But I'm glad when he does the work. That's what happens when the friends switch. There's a, there's a friend switch because we're united in Christ now. Verse 28, he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. So we've switched friends. Now it helps us to have a boldness to talk about Jesus. Evangelism and talking about our faith is not something we do in isolation. We do it together. And so in our smaller group communities, we can be cheering each other on. We might not always be able to be with the person when they're out there with someone. However, we can cheer each other on. We come back together. We talk about how that went. And so now here's this small group of community, these new friends that that Saul has, and he's boldly speaking about Jesus, and he knows he's got these others uh, that are right in there with him. In verse 30, then he has trouble again. The brethren learned of it. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So now they get him out of the city uh, of uh, another city. Now, what, what do we see here with these friends? There's a friend switch uh, when we're genuinely coming to Jesus. And here would be a question for us to ask ourselves or to think about other people. I often hear people say, I believe in God. They might even say they believe in Jesus, but I'm not real interested in the church. That's actually a love of God problem, not a love of the church problem. If a person loves God, that person will love the church for whom Jesus died. So a mark of a person that is a follower of Jesus is one that desires to be with other followers of Jesus. If we don't have that desire, that's at least a marker that maybe there's a love for God issue. And and we need to be careful not to be fooled when people say they believe in God. It's different to believe in God and to love God. It's different to believe in Jesus than to believe in such a way that it's totally gotten hold of me so that I love him. My affections are for him. My actions are for him. Everything now centers around him. But in this scenario, if I'm not interested in being with other followers of Jesus, that raises a red flag. That's a marker of someone that is a follower, a genuine follower of Jesus. When we have these friends, when we see from what happens with Saul, that helps us to root in, to strengthen, helps us when we're in trouble, helps us be bold in our faith, helps us to trust God uh, with people, helps us encourage Helps us connect. And in that way, we're living out the wisdom of the writer of Proverbs. In chapter 13, verse 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Who's the wise person? The one who fears God. 
Who's the fool? The Psalms say the fool is the one who says there is no God. And I would expand on that to say the fool would be the one that practices life as if there's no God, even if they say they believe in God. That's what Scripture says. So one marker. Now what? I get in a group of people that are like-minded around Christ. The second thing uh, that changes is our conversation. Our conversation changes. What we speak of changes if we've been genuinely converted to be a follower of Jesus. In verse 20, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he's the Son of God. Immediately, for Saul, his conversation changed. He's no longer ravaging Jesus and his people. He's gone into the synagogue to his people, and to them he's preaching Jesus is the Son of God. His conversation has changed. And then all those hearing him, they continued to be amazed. They were staggered. They, they, they could not believe what was happening. And I believe when they were watching him teach, that, that they weren't just amazed at his knowledge because he was a, a, one of the brightest of people. But are you ever with, with people and when you see Jesus change them, when they believe it, their whole countenance changes. You just kind of look and you're thinking, what happened to them? I just wonder if in that synagogue, when he was teaching, it wasn't just his knowledge, because he had that, but his face had changed. He radiated with Christ. There was a joy, a peace, a stability, a hope. It just radiated through him. And they were amazed. They couldn't believe it. Who's this guy? He was mad, angry, against everything. Now he's for it? Verse 22, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He was proving Jesus is the Christ. Conversation changed. Now he's proving. That word proving means to join or put together. He was putting the scriptures together for them to see so they could see that Jesus is the Christ. And they were perplexed by what he said. We live in a skeptical culture, a culture that's skeptical of Jesus. People who doubt the Bible. That might be you, candidly, and this is a great place for you have the freedom to explore that. People doubt whether the scriptures are true. They doubt whether the resurrection of Jesus is true. They doubt whether God is true. Evidence, though, scientifically, historically, archaeologically, sociologically, biblically, overwhelmingly points to Jesus. But if someone is willing to search the evidence and see this is true, that doesn't mean they'll still respond. So as many are talking about more today, it's not just about the facts and the evidence that this is true. People also need to see why it matters. And it matters because it's beautiful. And it's pleasurable. And it's joyful. And at the end of the day, that's what every person is after. Every person is after beauty, pleasure, and joy. If I could just ask anybody, what is it you're after? Why are you pursuing that with your job? Why are you pursuing the money? Why are you pursuing that person? Why are you pursuing that position? Why is that? Because there's a belief underneath that that it will bring you pleasure and joy, and it will be beautiful to you and to those around you. And the reason that 
our global workers in Lionheart and 121, that we keep talking about it. And the hope is that someone would say yes to Jesus is because he's where beauty is found. He's where joy is found. He's where pleasure is found. That, what we're look, that which we're looking for is in Jesus. So it's not just evidence in fact. It's the why behind that. And Paul's, he's salt. I can't wait till he's Paul because it's, it's much easier. But, but this is what he's doing. And he's speaking out boldly in verse 28. In Romans 1.16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He wasn't ashamed. This is power. And he knows it'll give you the same. So he boldly speaks it out. He understood Jesus' words to his disciples. It's the same for me and you today. To go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And I'll be with you. Verse 29, he was talking and arguing. So just in this small part of Scripture, his conversations changed. He's talking to groups in a synagogue. In the marketplace as he goes, and then he's, he's proving, he's talking, he's arguing. It's just kind of whatever it calls for, he's doing. He's just getting the message out there with however that group or person needs to hear it. So what, what about us? When we talk about this kind of conversation, oftentimes we think, okay, that's, there's one way to do this. There's not one way to do it. And when we talk about our conversation changing, I'm not talking about that every time this is about how can I sit down with you, walk through the gospel with you, hope at the end of sharing the gospel you trust Jesus and that we walk away and everything's changed. I love those conversations, by the way. But this is also... I'm so enamored with Jesus that this morning I was reading in his word, and I can't help but tell you today, I was reading scriptures this morning. This is where God met me, and I just tell you what I read. Our conversation changed me that God's the center of it. It may be that uh, I'm out in something beautiful like where we were in Ireland. It's absolutely some of the most beautiful uh, mountains and greenery. As one person said, there's colors of green here that aren't in Texas. I mean, it's a, it's a different depth of green. And you're looking at that, and I can either look at that and say, man, Mother Nature's amazing, or if God has changed my life, I realize God's the creator of all this. This is actually broken, and it's beautiful, and I'm getting a glimpse, and one day I'm going to see something that's greens I can't even start to fathom. But what I would say to somebody is, isn't it amazing that God would create this? That's just my conversation. I can't help but say that. So our conversation, all kinds of our conversation changes. And, and, and when we think about talking about Jesus, we learn from our global workers and people all over the world. It's what we've been teaching the last couple of years. At least one way to talk about God is to talk about it in God's story. Creation, the fall. Redemption, the new heavens, the new earth, new creation. That's not the only way to talk about Jesus. It's a way for us to wrap our minds around it. We can talk about him in the marketplace. Again, all of us have spheres of influence. God has gifted you in the workplace, whatever it is, so you can make the most of your work. He designed us to work. It's good. And it's where you can earn money so you can do well for your family. And it's a way you can earn money so you can give generously so the kingdom can advance. It's a way that you can be with people that are other Christians that you can mutually encourage. And it's a way for you to be with people who don't know Jesus and to be Jesus to them. Last night, uh, I was at a wedding in Houston with my son. Uh, and the wedding was over, and we were going to the reception, and he started talking to a guy, and I walk up and got in the conversation. It was the neatest conversation. This guy's name is Ryan, 23 years old, lives in uh, Austin, got married about a year ago, 
They're 13 weeks pregnant. Um, there's a lot that's gone on in this guy's life in the last couple of years. Just a joy about him. And he starts telling us his story. So God saved him at 21 years old. So two years ago is when God saved him. And he immediately got with some friends, some new friends that are following Jesus. But there was one among that group of friends that he just saw a joy in her and a life in her. And he thought, I want to know what she's doing. So even among the Christians he was immediately around, there was one that he identified and saw something even more different in that one. And he just said, what did you do? And the way that he, she responded, she was a part of this world race for missions. I don't think I'd heard of this. Now that I've said it a few times, I'm thinking, had I heard of it and I just forgot? But I said, well, okay, what is that? He goes, 11 countries, 11 months on mission. It's for 21 to 35-year-olds. They're sending groups out all year long. They start in Asia, work their way back to South America, hit 11 different countries a month at a time, work with global workers to advance the community. He said it was amazing. He said, we saw miracles all the time. Saw hundreds of people that God reached down and saved. He said, I came back uh, and I got into software sales in Austin. He said, that's what it's going to do for my career, so that's what I'm, I'm doing. My pastor saw something in me, asked me to be the youth minister in a pretty sizable church. He said, I did that for a few months. And uh, he said, that's when I decided I have a different respect for you guys. Uh, that wasn't for me. So we moved it along, got a person to come in and lead it. He said, I'm back in software sales. And he said, my desire is to be an example and a model of how to lead people to Christ in the business world. I said, let me just cheer you on. I love that. I said, how are you doing it? I was kind of just getting started. But he said, I had a mentor tell me that if I'm going to have credibility with the gospel, then I've got to be the very best at what I do. And he said, then people will come. His mentor said, then people will come and ask you, why are you successful? Why is this happening for you? And he said, so far, this is what he does when people come to him because he's having success. He said, it's just a natural part of my story. He said, I pray before every phone call that God will give me wisdom and favor in this call. He said, if somebody asks, I'm just telling them what I'm doing. Planting seeds. Hadn't had an opportunity yet to lead somebody to Christ. Believes it'll come. All of there's a 23-year-old young man in IT software sales that has such a vision for the gospel that he knows in his workplace that he can advance the kingdom and advance it well. That's a way when we were in Dublin the other day, I was by myself for a few hours in Dublin. I was walking down Grafton Street. And you know how in, in cities there's usually like a street everybody tells you to go to because that's where the restaurants are, the shop, what, whatever, pick a city. Uh, and Grafton Street is this, the Dublin city for that, or the street for that. I'm walking along, and I, I'm not usually this way, but I was for a few moments. I was overwhelmed by the masses of people. I mean, it was masses. And I thought, most of these probably don't know Jesus. And I really got overwhelmed. I was asking the Lord, I said, okay, well, how do, I don't even know how this is going to happen. And, and then there's people playing like their instruments and singing, right? You know, you know how that is, and they have their guitar case, and you chunk a tip in there if you think they did well. I really admire those people. It's a lot of guts to do that. And I'm watching it, and I was thinking, I wonder if anybody sings Christian songs, and I wonder if anybody gets out here and shares the gospel. And then I walked further, then across a bridge, and then there were these four or five Africans that had a sign out, and it's the one that makes most of us cringe. This is repent 
or you're going to meet the wrath of God and go to hell. And then a man is preaching on a microphone, and I thought, well, Lord, I asked. (laughs) And somebody is. Now, several years ago, I quit judging the street corner preacher. Used to, I would think, I think this is hurting the cause more than it's helping it. But I've listened to so many people's stories over time. It's crazy to me how people come to Jesus. And I thought, I got to spot that guy credit for standing here in the midst of the masses with a microphone. He's proclaiming truth. And I think the question we have to ask before we throw stones at that guy is what is our plan to talk about Jesus? That guy has a plan. He's out there mixing it up. And I'm not suggesting we all get a microphone and head to the the closest street corner on Main Street in Grapevine. Maybe somebody. And that may be a bizarre way that God brings somebody to himself. I think Mark Middleberg is helpful for us. He wrote a book called Contagious uh, Faith. Uh, And in it, he talks about... uh, Different styles of talking about our faith. And this should be a relief to you. Because I really do believe God wants to work through our personalities, our backgrounds, our experiences. The way we're wired to talk about Jesus with other people. And so he describes five different styles. One is uh, a friendship building style like Matthew. He just kind of had parties. So a lot of people just love to entertain, have people, build friendships. That's a, that's a way to just build friendships and then... See how God opens the door. Invite them into something. There's a selfless serving style at the end of Acts 9 with Tabitha. She's just known for her good deeds. There's some of you that you just naturally just do good things for people, serve them. And then that opens the door to talk about Jesus. There's a story sharing style. And I love this because for all of us, if we've been encountered by Jesus, we have a story. And oftentimes what Jesus would say is, go back into the village and just tell them what I did for you. You don't have to know very much. You just have to know what God just did for you. And just talk about that. And there's a reason-giving style. That's more the apologetics, the evidence, defending our faith. And a truth-telling style. It's just preaching the truth, laying it out there. But somehow, someway, however God wants to work in our conversations, when we actually get to the gospel... However you choose to share it, whatever way we train, if you don't like it, you can try another way. Somewhere the core message is Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. God raised him from the dead. And if you believe this and repent, you're his. You're just believing some good news. And then, now what? Friends change. Conversation changes. And the two things I'll hit on quickly... Our time changes. Between verse 22 and 23, most scholars believe that this is where Galatians 1, 16 16 through 18 refers. And that Saul actually goes away for three years to Arabia. And then in verse 23, it says, after many days lapsed, then he's returning back to Damascus after that three-year time in Arabia. The next four weeks... I want us to talk about rest and solitude, hanging out with Jesus. That's what he did. That's what Saul did. Genuine conversion to Christ. Now I actually want to hang out with Jesus. So my time changes. The way I spend my time, now I spend time with him. And I love one thing Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, that without solitude... Paraphrase, community is worthless. Without community, solitude is worthless. If I'm not spending solitude, hanging out with God alone, I have nothing to offer the community. I'm just a talking head imitating what everybody else is saying. And if I just do one or the other, then the other one gets left amiss. So our time changes. 
And then the fourth thing from here that I see is that our safety changes. I want to be really careful how you hear me on this part. There is times where we need safety, and that is a high value. And as a church, in those situations that are dangerous and hard spots where you need safety, then we're here to rally around each other to find that safety. I, th- I think that would make sense to people who need that. But what I want to say to us about our faith in Jesus, if we're going to live like God has called us to live, then our safety changes. We're actually not safe. We're not physically safe if we're going to follow Jesus. There's a price to be paid. And if safety is what we desire to get on the adventure of following Jesus, safety is not part of the deal. Now here's the irony. If we're in Christ and on the adventure of following him, we're actually in the safest place of all. Because in Colossians 3 it says that we're hidden with Christ in God. But what's safe is our soul. And when I know I'm safe at my core, I know that God is going to usher me safely in, no matter what happens to this body or to me in this space of time that we physically live. So our safety changes once we say yes to Jesus. Well, the last thing in verse 31, it says that the church increases. Earlier it said that Saul increased uh, in strength. And I think that's the right question for us today. Are we increasing in our love for God? Are we increasing in our love for People who know Christ, those new friends with a centering on Jesus. Are we increasing in our conversation about God, Christ, His Word? Are we increasing in our time of hanging out and enjoying Him? Are we increasing in our willingness to not be safe for the sake of Christ, in the things of Christ. And the more we increase in those, it will strengthen those muscles, and we will increase all the more. I think it's why John wrote in 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's what he's called us into. Well, I said at the outset, I wanted to end our time by commissioning and setting apart uh, our Lionheart workers. But I want to share a story with you of what's going on there that's a beautiful picture of what we just talked about today. Of a real conversion to Christ, and then now what? And the beautiful job that Lionheart is doing. This story is told by permission. So a single mom, she's 21 years old now, Um, was a straight-A student in high school. And her senior year started to veer off with drugs and alcohol. When she went away to college, uh, she got pregnant uh, by her boyfriend and returned home. She had the child. And then with that same man, she got pregnant again uh, with a second child. And she contemplated abortion just because this boyfriend was abusive, both mentally and physically. And the idea of having another child with him was just horrid to her. She ultimately chose to have the child. 
And about six months later, that guy disappeared, gratefully. She had become a believer in Jesus when she was a child. She was baptized. But in veering off, and then what she had been through, she didn't really believe the church is a place she could go back to, be reconciled to, and be accepted at. But on a cool front, and again the way Pete talked about the front porch of Lionheart, a friend invited her uh, to check out Lionheart uh, and to enroll her two kids there. And they were able to do that. And we've talked about scholarship money that we do for families because we want people that can't afford it to be able to do it. So this young lady's two kids are part of the Lionheart Scholarship Program. And right now, I just read the other day, across all the Lionheart Academies, there's 200 uh, families that are being scholarshiped right now. That's not just our church. That's multiple Lionheart Academies, which is really cool because we all understand the high cost uh, of child care. And for many, it's just not even in the hunt. Uh, of being able to be afforded. Uh, And so for her, uh, she said, uh, after that invitation, it has stirred her. Uh, She herself now is more hungry to be back into God's Word. Uh, Lionheart has become like her community. uh, And she said this, Lionheart's had a huge impact for me as a single mom, showing the importance of Christ being central in my home. I did not have that in my early childhood, not until my mom remarried a Christian man when I was nine. With the support of Lionheart, I've been able to establish a much firmer foundation for my children. So they're helping establish the, fir- the foundation, and it's, they're doing the now what? With the family. And that, that's what we're praying, is that families will be transformed by the beauty and goodness of Jesus. So we wanted today, after in celebrating the five-year anniversary and then moving ahead, one, it's a chance for our church to understand afresh uh, the beauty of the partnership that we have with Lionheart. There's opportunities for all of us to serve together. If you have any interest in volunteering and serving, there are opportunities in Lionheart to do so with the children. And then we just wanted the workers to know how we view them. And we believe God has set them apart for the children here to bring the message of Christ to them. And oftentimes you'll see in Scripture that laying on of hands and praying over those who've been set apart for certain tasks. So I just want to invite, we're easy targets today. So uh, I just want to invite any Lionheart uh, worker to come. Uh, I'm going to have them gather right here. Uh, And this is what I'd like to do. I would love for 30 or 40 of us here to come surround them and to pray over them. We're going to lay hands on them and pray. I know if you don't usually see that, it can sound weird, um, but it's not. I mean, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, so I just want to invite, and I just thought today it'd be cool if you're a parent, because you know what that's like. Uh, if you would be game uh, to come, and then we're going to pray over them together as a group. Uh, And then I'll pray over them individually. So if y'all could, let's be like an amoeba and just kind of ball up. And then don't be shy. Those who are comfortable coming up and praying and laying hands on them, if you'll come join me. Thank you. I see movement all over the room. It's fantastic. If you're online with us, will you pray also for those who are leading at Lionheart? Uh, And as a church, will you pray silently for them? Uh, as we pray over them. Now, I'm going to add to the weirdness, and this is how we're going to pray. Find your, put your hand on somebody's shoulder. Be as gender appropriate as you can. Um, I did that earlier, and then I put my hands on two of the ladies. I thought, I just violated what I said. So um, we're all friends here. Um, And I just want you all to pray at the same time. So we're not going to alternate praying. I just want you to pray. It's like a holy roar. Uh, to God in praying. Uh, So I'm just going to invite those surrounding them to pray out loud. If you'll pray silently, however you want to do it at home is fantastic. Just pray. Uh, And then when I sense we're ready, then I'll pray over us as a whole. So let's let's just begin praying uh, for these workers.
Father, thank you so much for just your goodness towards us, and thank you for your pursuit uh, of us uh, and your love for us, God. And we praise you today uh, that you're a gracious and kind God, that you're a generous God, uh, that you're beautiful and that you're good. And Father, you're the one uh, that brings life. Uh, I just am constantly reminded of what I heard somebody say a few years ago, that whoever wins the mind of a child wins. And God, I thank you uh, that we have the opportunity through Lionheart with these children uh, for their minds to be one to you early uh, and to be shaped by you. And then, God, the other thing I can't ever shake is the thought that by the age of 10, uh, that the mind of a child is shaped. Uh, and so, God, I thank you that there's this season of time uh, for hours every day uh, where the minds of our children can be shaped around Jesus. And Father, I pray that the knowledge that's being imparted in them, that the joy and the love and the life that flows from the workers, uh, that they just could not help but early say yes to you and that all their lives, Jesus, they would follow you. God, I pray that uh, for each of the teachers, would you give them uh, an unusual wisdom with each child to love each child individually and well, to know what those needs are and how to best teach them and love them and care for them. I pray, Father, you'll give them a patience that's supernatural from you. And Lord, I pray you'll give them insight and wisdom from your word, and God, that they'd constantly be sharing the truths uh, of Christ. Uh, and so we thank you for that. I pray, God, there'd be unity among them as they work together. And and then, Father, I pray that just in their personal needs outside of here, uh, God, that you'd meet them very uh, specifically. You'd be a provider for them, God. And, Lord, I pray that you'd provide solid community for them where they can be growing intimately with you so that when they show up with the kids, that they're just in the overflow of their relationship with you. Father, I pray parents would see what's going on and that their hearts would be struck by you and that through their child sharing verses at home or stories that they heard or uh, just the life-giving that comes. I pray, God, that when the parents hear it, that you would ignite their hearts for yourself and, God, their affections for you and stir them for yourself, God. So we thank you for that. And, uh, Lord, we just pray in the days ahead. There's so many that uh, are waiting and would like to be a part. I pray, God, that you just expand and open up and increase the opportunities so that more and more children have the opportunity uh, to be loved and led uh, in ways by you. Father, I pray that these workers would know uh, that you have set them apart for this task uh, in this season of time and what a gift it is and the massive responsibility it is. Thank you for loving the children enough to give them uh, these as their leaders. And Father, I pray that um, in the days ahead, their eyes would be kept on you I pray, God, that they would know that we're for them uh, and that they are loved deeply uh, by those uh, around and doing ministry with them. So we thank you today and pray in the powerful and good name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you all so much. We're so grateful for what you do. Thank you for praying, and, uh, and I hope that will be ongoing as God prompts it. This even this sight uh, will stir your heart to pray. Uh, in very specific ways.